Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the B-Side from the film stage. Here we talk about movie stars and not the movies that made them famous or kept them famous, but the ones they made in between. And today we celebrate royalty. Uh, our star today is the one and only Carrie Fisher. Uh, as always, I'm joined by Connor O'Donnell. How are you, Connor? I am wonderful, Daniel. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> Our esteemed guest today is Courtney Enlow, who is the associate editor of Sci-Fi Wire Fangirls and the co-host of Trends Like These and Strong Female Characters, two great podcasts currently out and about, and you can listen to them everywhere. How are you, Courtney? I am very good. Thank you guys for having me, especially on this auspicious occasion yeah. I know of, it our, works. of our Space Mom's birthday. Yeah, <laughs> Space Mom, yes. Exactly. Between her birthday and um, Rise of Skywalker, the rise of Skywalker, who could forget the rise coming soon, rising to, in theaters very, very soon. Um, if you're listening, probably right now. You, you, you could be at a screening right now right. when this, when this you drops. Just and if you are listening screen. to this at a screening, you do not deserve to be at a screening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, and I was just, it was so funny. I, I see these screenings. I was talking to my wife about this. I have seen the trailer for like a boss of million times. The, the, uh, the, what is it? The, the Miguel Arteta, right? It was, who's in it? It's got Rose Byrne Rose Byrne and, and Tiffany Haddish, Tiffany Haddish and, Salma and, Salma and Salma Hayek. I've seen it now four times cause I saw Knives Out twice. Yes. <laughs> yes. I honestly, like the more I see it, I'm like, I'm I'm on board for this. This movie. is what me. This is what me and my wife were talking about. The every time I see it, the Billy Porter scene where he's where he does like witness my he like gets fired yeah. or whatever. Every time I see it, I'm like maybe for this scene alone I should go. I this know. feels like anyway. Sorry for that. Just brutal sidetrack. But we're, we're I'm talking keep, about. I'm keeping it in. I'm keeping it in. We're to, oh obviously, dude. We're keeping <clears throat> uh, we're keeping that in, and we're talking about Carrie Fisher, who of course you know as Princess Leia, Leia Organa in the Star Wars movies. Um, I, you know she uh, sadly passed uh, a few years back, but. From from the looks of it, is has a cameo in Rise of Skywalker. I think J.J. Abrams said they filmed something for one of the last two movies that didn't get used, and I think that was the uh, impetus for the scene that's in this movie. Um, yeah, so, basically they had like eight minutes of footage, right? And he uh, like reverse engineered the script from those eight minutes. Interesting. Yeah, I know it's it's interesting, and you know he he's a good salesman, right? And I he, the way he talks about it feels like. I'm I'm very curious, you know, and I think, you know, if it can be organic, I think it'll be obviously a nice, uh, you know, a nice touch. I mean, I think, I mean, this was meant to be her movie, right? Uh, it was meant to be kind of a movie for each of the original cast, and this was meant to be her movie, so it's kind of sad. Even, you know, sad, obviously, on its own, but even with that context of where the narrative was going to go, um, that episode nine was going to kind of be her thing, was a little bit of a bummer, so... Uh, we'll hope that that all works out. As we said, you're probably finding out right now. Um, the movies we're doing today, we're going to kind of go a little off book. Usually we pick three or four movies. Carrie Fisher is kind of an interesting subject for us, and we're kind of cheating because I, I would argue she never became a movie star outside of Star Wars. But, right? I mean, so. But my, yeah, I mean, this is my qualification when you and I talked about doing this. Is yeah. She's a screen legend. Like there's no, no, no there, right, there's no two right. ways about it. Yeah, it's not really cheating. It's it's it, she's different from other people we've done, right? Where yeah. it's like when we talked about doing her B. I mean, these are like C size, sure, right? Sure. These are like deep cuts, right? So just to go through them real quick chronologically, the ones we focused on primarily: Under the Rainbow from '81, 
Garbo Tox uh, from 84, Hollywood Vice Squad from 86, 85, 86, Appointment with Death, 88, The Time Guardian from 87 in Australia, but it got released in the U.S. in 89, and uh, she's back from 89. So kind of her 80s output, obviously not including uh, the two Star Wars movies. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess just to open up, where where's Carrie Fisher in our lives? Obviously, I I was introduced to her probably like most of us through the Star Wars movies. And then uh, when Harry Met Sally is, I think I've said this on the podcast before, kind of a mecca family staple. I've seen it probably a billion times. So I probably had more of a fondness for her. In You're that watching role, it right now. In, you're, it's going an equal, uh, yeah. exactly yeah. an equal fondness, an equal fondness, definitely uh, with Star Wars uh, for her in that movie. And Courtney, I wanted to mention. I so when we, we were talking about doing this podcast, I listened to some of the uh, the episodes, and in one of your episodes on strong female characters, you kind of celebrated Carrie Fisher, and you guys went into the whole the beauty, and you put it so greatly the the beauty of the one Harry Met Sally performance. Oh my God. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. She is spectacular in it. Yeah. And that whole movie has like everything I love about romantic comedies. It's got like the 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 quality dialogue and great performances all around. And she still manages to kind of steal the movie in every scene she's in. Um I also yeah. so I've I'm, you know, Star Wars is for all of us really important, but I have kind of a love of Carrie, like the person. Um, that I think I I fell in love with her even more than I ever did Leia, and I love Leia, but her work in you know writing as a writer for one thing, she's an incredible writer, um, and her speaking out honestly and openly about her mental health issues, like that's absolutely I think she has totally. saved lives, and I love her. I will also. In addition to the great performance in When Harry Met Sally, I will throw in Soap Dish, in which she is in like two scenes, and it's still like the most perfect scene of the movie. She's just so good. Yeah, and I think, I mean, Connor, I want to hear, Connor, what what she is in your life, but I will say just as kind of as we move into these movies, the Soap Dish mention and her small role in that is going to be kind of, I think, a running theme in the movies we're going to talk about. She was rarely the star outside of obviously the Star Wars movies, but you'll find that she made basically every movie she was in better. You know, she even if she's only in a couple of scenes, she's so she's so locked in. And even, you know, in the postcards from the edge of it all, maybe she wasn't always fully locked in, of course, but even even at 70%, she's crushing scenes. And you know, we'll talk about it. And I think that's just so impressive. Um, just as an actress that she was able to kind of over deliver in limited time in so many cases. Um, but Connor, tell me, tell me your carry, your care experience. I, I mean, I want to say outside of, you know, yeah, outside of obviously Leia, um, my first introduction to her was probably, and I can't necessarily tell which came first, but it was probably some combination of when Harry met Sally and her cameo in, in the first Austin Powers movie. As, oh as oh the God. psychiatrist. I forget about that every time. It's a nice little cameo. I mean, her career right. is obviously littered with those, right? Um, but that I want to say, it, it, only because I can't pinpoint necessarily which I saw first. Those are my two earliest memories of her, I think, outside of of Leia. Um, in so much as just first, you know, you obviously go, oh, that's Carrie Fisher. But 
Courtney, to your point, I think as I've watched and rewatched and rewatched and rewatched when Harry met Sally, that performance is just it. It's like transcendent. Like it's and it's mm-hmm. a lot. I, I think. And to your point about her as an author, there's something so incredibly honest about Carrie Fisher that's like so amazingly refreshing. Um, I think especially, you know, obviously in what she does with people who, uh, you know, suffer suffer from manic depression or bipolar disorder specifically. Right. But um, but outside of that, I think just even her um, sort of championing victims of uh, and sufferers of mental illness in general, like her candid nature about playing Princess Leia, how that affected her, how she affected it and like coming to grips with it over the course of her career, I think is also like a really, really nice thing. I think it's it's something I've come to like about uh, particularly all three of those original trilogy leads as they've grown mm-hmm. in their careers. Mark Hamill's another great one because like he also never quite escaped it. Harrison Ford sort of clearly is kind of the only one who maybe did. And even him, you know, Han Solo is still one of the two things you're going to reference immediately with Harrison Ford. But, um, but yeah, I think there's a, just a general candid nature to her that always really, really struck me. And I think I've only, maybe like some people have really only started to dig into that in the past, like few years since she's passed, because in sort of this crazy, tragic way, I feel like she became you know, even more prominent in the, uh, in the cultural eye once again, and then, and then passed away. And it, 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 it's a bummer because it felt like she was on this really interesting ups, upswing of like a late career, uh, resurgence in a way. I will say if anyone is listening and hasn't either read or seen wishful drinking, I recommend yeah. both Yeah, because, um, the, the one woman show she made out of it. I believe it's usually available on um, HBO Go, HBO Now. Mm-hmm. But it's so amazing. And she's so good in it. And she's so funny. And I I consider it just required viewing for everyone. My, I, I've seen, I've watched Wishful Drinking, I don't know, three or four times. It, it might might be my single favorite thing she's ever done. And um, I love the bit where she talks about... Um, uh, how she learned from her mother ne- after Eddie Fisher never to marry a popular Jewish singer, and then the screen cuts to Paul Simon and her. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of my favorite bits. That yeah, definitely you got to uh, you got to seek that out. There's also Bright Lights, um, which is about um, Debbie Reynolds, her mother, and Carrie Fisher, and also Todd Fisher's in a lot of that doc. Um, co-directed by Fisher Stevens, which uh, Courtney on your podcast when when you guys realized. Fisher Stevens directed it. It was one of the highlights of that podcast. I feel like um, a little short circuit reference in the uh, in the realizing that Fisher's- I love dropping bits of knowledge on people. We just did um, yeah. a podcast for Sci-Fi called uh, Job of the Pod, and every nice. you know a group of writers uh, covered different movies. And I had The Force Awakens, and I got to uh, tell my co-hosts that Ben Schwartz did the voice of BB-8, and they had no idea. Oh, right, and I yeah. love just delivering these random jewels of knowledge <laughs> on people. So yeah, getting to tell Sharon Preethi that uh, Fisher Stevens directed that movie. Well, was and a also special not <laughs> only that you got yeah you guys realize that Fisher Stevens you know in your and then it's like furthermore Fisher Stevens is like become a, a he director. he's made so a, many documentaries yeah. you know he what I mean like Cove, he's like right? yeah. Well, he not, yeah yeah he, and then he he directed the last Leo. Uh, 
you know, um, environment movie, uh, Before the Flood. Oh, interesting. So it's so funny. He's so, uh, he's so accomplished as a documentarian. Anyway, um, so with that, let's get to, let's get to Under the Rainbow. Let's, let's get Under the Rainbow and Ooh, talk about okay. this movie for a minute. Now, okay. So basically, this movie comes out in 81, you know, a year after Empire Strikes Back. And I feel like this is the first... Carrie Fisher's a movie star now. Let's get her, let's, you know, let's get her a non-Star Wars movie. She her her acting debut is in Shampoo, um, which is a couple of years before uh Star Wars. And the way that Carrie Fisher talks about it in her books and in her interviews, it kind of happened on accident. She was just kind of around those people and she ended up being in the movie. It's kind of a great little role. If you guys have seen Shampoo, she's kind of a young, uh, impressionable, you know. Oh, I guess playing a version of herself. I mean, I feel like that's a little reductive to say that, but she has kind of a great scene with Warren Beatty um, right in the middle of the movie. That kind of speaks to her cutting wit and uh, on-screen sensibility. Um, so I definitely seek that out just as a first role. It's kind of uh, really well done. And then um, obviously Star Wars is crazy. Under the Rainbow... Steve Rash is the director. Um, Steve Rash, just just so we're all aware, um, he he directed the Buddy Holly story, which got Gary Busey nominated, and then he went on to direct Can't Buy Me Love, um, a bunch of Bring It On sequels, Bring It On All or Nothing, Bring It On In It to Win It, and also directed the Xena. The you guys remember Xena? Was it Xenon Girl of the Future? Is that yes, that, which is now he, available on Disney on Plus. Disney Plus. <laughs> and I would I would wager the movie he directed Z three is also available on Disney Plus. Probably, frankly, so, probably is. So Steve Rash uh, kept making movies after this movie. So basically, Under the Rainbow is loosely based on the group of little people that came to Hollywood to audition for roles as the Munchkins in The Wizard of Oz, right? So in real life, as legend has it, they were a disruptive sort, right? Like they they took over a hotel and it was rambunctious and crazy and, you know, it's like a Hollywood tale. Okay. So this movie is basically a version of that plus a million other things, right? So what you have is Chevy Chase as a Secret Service agent with these European dignitaries. They go to this hotel at the same time. Carrie Fisher is like um, a studio executive assistant of sorts at the studio that's making Wizard of Oz. And she's in charge of basically getting all these little people to the hotel and making sure they're, they have room and board. She, uh, she's deemed so, the uh, like special talent manager is what they is what they call right. her in the movie and a young adam arkin which is so crazy we've talked about adam arkin before and our when we talked about hanging up and meg ryan because he's in that movie young adam arkin is like the son of the owner of the hotel and the owner of the hotel runs off for the weekend with his like with the hotel receptionist i think receptionist yeah. who's having an affair with you know and 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 leaves the the sleepy hotel in the charge of adam arkin and then all of a sudden all the little people show up and chevy chase shows up with the dignitaries and a bunch of asian tourists shows up in probably one of the more racially insensitive it's, things i've seen in a movie in a long time and yeah. they all had booked rooms and there aren't enough rooms and so what ends up happening is it becomes this comedy of errors in which there's a guy trying to assassinate the foreign dignitaries that Chevy Chase has been charged with protecting. 
Wow, the little people have started partying because there aren't enough rooms and they're all drinking and going crazy and Carrie Fisher trying to keep them, you know, at bay. And also you find out there's a, not one of the cast members of Wizard of Oz, but another little person is a secret Nazi who is meeting up with a Japanese person pretending to be a tourist who's a spy. For those right? listening, Am I, right, I wish you could see right? Courtney's face right now. I'm reading the Wikipedia <laughs> entry along with your Me description. And I'm like, because this is one of the movies that I didn't get a chance to watch. And I'm yeah. very glad about that. But this is the most buckwild movie I've it's, ever heard it of. It is. It's crazy. And, you know, it just it, it kind of speaks to, you know, we look, we talk about the different periods of Hollywood. Obviously, it comes up when we talk about these movie stars. This is 81. Right. So Under the Rainbow, I feel like is a great example of kind of this period of time, your Heaven's Gate, you know, you know, these movies. Things were changing ultimately in a more commercial way. And you get these weird mishmas sorry, mishmash, mishmash, thank you, mishmash like movies in between where new Hollywood's fading away and kind of Reagan 80s Hollywood is, you know, I mean, this up. definitely seems more mismash than mishmash. Like this is rough <laughs> stuff happening in this movie. Yeah, and it's just, so, so basically everything happens all the time in this movie. They all, everything congeals. It's, it, it, you can't really make sense of it at the end, you know, I guess slight spoilers for this movie. At the end, they basically they they almost literally put everybody into a room together for the purposes of explaining what's going on, and like, and then accident after accident happens, which allows our heroes to escape. And basically, there's a forced romance on screen between Carrie Fisher and Chevy Chase. There's not really a lot of chemistry. I will say that Carrie Fisher, I thought, and Connor, I'm curious to hear your take. I thought Carrie Fisher was great in this movie. Yeah, like I, I really it, felt like she really, was lighting up the screen. And yeah, lovely. it is actually yeah. really a bummer that like this is you know a, a post Star Wars movie that somebody gave her, she chose to do, or some combination of the two. But it is a bummer because she like she has the chops. Like it's not like she didn't have the chops. So the fact that like she like clearly didn't necessarily just skyrocket it's a huge bummer because it's it's there in this movie i think she's really charming in this movie i mean this movie's loads this might be one of the most offensive movies i've seen in recent memory like this movie is insane there are a whole i mean this seems to hit everything it's it's, racist it's it's, It's like anti-little people right which i maybe in a weird it's like one of those like uh yeah just one of those old school comedian things where they're like well i offend everybody right like that's what this movie feels like that's what i was gonna say this movie yeah this movie feels like that exact sentiment you know you know and this is the this is the craziest thing. I feel like for 1981, they thought they were being controversial and even a little progressive because right. there's stuff with the little people in the movie where there is diversity in the characters, right? So you have like, you know, the Nazi agent um, who was a, a relatively famous um, actor who I gotta find his name. Yeah, as he, I'm looking he, at is that Billy Barty. Yes, 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 okay. yes, yes. And he yes. Got, Thank you, Billy he Barty. Got yes. nominated or won a Razzie for this. Probably won. Which is, that's, but, yeah. I mean, that doesn't seem fair, but he's doing a lot of kind of, I mean, at the very least, it's it's interesting. Eve Arden is funny. She's one of the, she. it's the Duke and the Duchess are the people Chevy Chase are trying to protect. Eve Arden's pretty funny in this movie as well. She does some funny work as, as the Duchess. Um, but then there's another character 
among the Wizard of Oz um, cast members, the Munchkins, who is is the hero. So I almost in my head, I'm, I can imagine studio executives feeling like, God, look what we're doing. We're we're touch, we're touching all the bases. And, you know, little people can be evil and they can be yeah. good. Like we're being so smart. His and name I is just, his name is Court oh, Hubbard. Tough is is his name. Uh, yeah, he's good. He's yeah, Rollo in it. Yeah. And um, and look, Chevy Chase. He's his name's Bruce Bruce Thorpe, and he's look, he's not great in it. I think the thing with Chevy you run into, especially even at even when he was young and very, you know, popular and famous, he would take movies off. You know, you know, I think you know in terms in terms of the effort he was putting into it. Sure. And I feel like this is one of the ones he took off. I just. You feel like there's so many moments where he could have really added a little bit of that zest and sure. he just maybe they told him not to, maybe Steve Rash told him, you know, maybe it was a decision, but it feels like he's kind of not giving it his all, which is kind of a shame. And um I don't know, Connor, what do you think? I mean, what else is there to say about this movie? It cost 18 million, it grossed 18 million. It was considered a disappointment. I was reading kind of old New York Times box office, you know, rundowns and it was in the list of oh you know this one was scheduled to be a huge hit and was only you know modestly successful which i that alone speaks to the craziness of 1981 i suppose but i mean i'll say this if you if you're listening and you like courtney you just read the wikipedia and it sounds just truly (laughs) bonkers it is and more so and if that's something you want to do I don't know. I wouldn't say I'd encourage it, but it is an insane watch. Like I, I was not yeah. bored. I'll say that. Like I was just neither was aghast, I. It was, but yeah. Um, but it is an insane watch. There is a sequence in this film, and we'll close <laughs> it with this before moving on. There is a sequence in this film where the elevator operator uh, goes up, and two of the little people, because this movie paints them as just such such rascals for no reason, <laughs> but two of them take out the elevator cable and the elevator drops with uh, with the operator in it and it drops into the basement and then the operator gets out of the elevator and what is he? He's a little person now. Yes, that's right. The force of the elevator dropping <laughs> turns him into, I whatever, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> I will say I have, I, I have not seen this and I have not read any information on this. Just knowing them as people, I bet Carrie Fisher and Chevy Chase hated each other. Oh, no. oh God. I am oh, sure. Yeah. I couldn't find anything to corroborate it. But yeah, I, I know that she considers this to be and granted, I don't know when this like when she was cited as saying this. So she has probably said this about a number of the movies she made, particularly in the 80s, I'm sure. But she cited this as one of the as maybe the worst movie she ever made. Um. Which I which is going to be saying something as we continue to go through mm-hmm. uh, these these next couple ones. So yeah, I mean it's certainly something that you will not forget. And when you if you watch yeah. it, I mean that's I not won't necessarily forget, I a won't compliment. forget that elevator sequence. I think as long as I live, there's also a whole plot point that revolves around a Japanese accent mispronouncing the the word liver as river. That's a whole thing. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I forgot about hoi, that. It's bad. See, um, I mean, I just there, the Wikipedia entry informed me that there is a it's a Japanese slur on the side of a bus, but it's okay because it's an acronym. 
Um, for a photography yeah. society, you can figure out the first two letters, and it's yeah. like that's a joke. That's a joke. They thought was a good joke. They like they just really good leaned job, into it. truly uh, killing the game. Shocking. And, truly shocking. And because I guess that's the, that's the thing. Like even for a movie that came out when this did, there are plenty of movies that jokes age badly, right? Like I, you know, I I love Airplane, right? For instance, mm-hmm. and it's hilarious. There are certainly jokes in that movie that have aged badly. I still like the movie because, you know, you can associate, you know, when the joke was made and whatnot, even by those standards with this movie, this movie is off the rails. It's insane. Um, But anyway, that's under the rainbow. Now, now, so, okay, the next few movies we're going to talk about, it's kind of interesting because, or at least the next two, it's interesting, the directors, right? Because these are, these are little known movies, I would argue in general. But the directors are accomplished, very good directors. So I think this is kind of an interesting thing with Carrie Fisher. So obviously, Return of the Jedi comes out in '83, um, and is is a hit. You know, I think it makes a little bit more uh, than Empire Strikes Back. And the next year, '84, uh, Carrie has Carrie Fisher has a a pretty small role, small but important role in Garbo Talks, directed by Sidney Lumet, who of course has given us any number of masterpieces but made a lot a lot a lot of movies and i think in the 80s that was kind of he was making a lot of movies that were underseen compared to some of the movies he may have made in the 70s you know you have you have stuff like prince of the city right family business garbo talks right they weren't quite as successful as um the rest of his output or earlier output basically garbo talks it's a new york um, comedy, drama, it's Anne Bancroft, uh, Ron Silver, and they're the two, they're, they play mother and son. And the premise of the movie is essentially Ron Silver is a yuppie living in New York with his wife, Carrie Fisher, and, and Anne Bancroft is a kind of very liberal, very active New Yorker. You know, she's always getting into trouble. Ron Silver's always having to bail her out. And essentially, she gets sick. And her last wish is to meet Greta Garbo, who's her favorite movie star. And that's the whole movie, right? The whole Then what ends up happening is Ron Silver is searching for Garbo. And she's rumored to live here. He reaches out to a private detective. He, you know, finds breadcrumbs here and there. And he basically becomes a mini sleuth in more of a comedic way in trying to find garbo and um in the process alienates himself from his job and carrie fisher and whatnot interesting movie from lumet um he would make he made lighter movies family business being one of them that i just mentioned sean connery dustin hoffman and matthew broderick from the late 80s so i i don't know that he ever had the same success with the comedies that he did obviously with the more serious work and i think this is a good example of maybe some of his maybe I don't know some of the the failings of that because I, I enjoyed this movie um, more than I thought I would. Especially, there is a monologue by Anne Bancroft at the end of this movie that I loved, and it, it I just it knocked me off my feet, and I it reminded me that Anne Bancroft is one of these like shockingly underrated actresses. I mean, just when you look at the stuff she's done, I feel you know obviously she's known for The Graduate, of course, but. She she was so good for so long and never really got the credit she deserved. I bet people have told you this till you're blue in the face. I've loved you ever since the first time I ever saw you. 
We were living on Eastern Parkway. That's in Brooklyn. My father gave me 10 cents to go to the movies with Wanda Stern. Hey, my girlfriend. My father didn't have much. 10 cents was a lot of money to him. He had six mouths to feed. We saw flesh and the devil. Your name was Felicitas von Galetzink, remember? What a name, I never forgot it, it stuck in my head. You know, movie names don't usually stick in your head. There I was, in the balcony of the Lois Pitkin. With Wanda Sternhagen in Brooklyn, and I was Estelle Garbo, eating a corned beef sandwich out of a brown paper bag. And Wanda kept saying, shh, because the brown paper bag kept rattling. It's easy being Estelle Garver when you're in the balcony, the Lois Pitkin in the dark. Nobody could see my double chin and my huge bust, not like yours. Nice. I shouldn't have been eating a corned beef sandwich anyway. I was a fat kid, I needed to lose some weight, but show me anything from a delicatessen, especially corned beef. You had me in the palm of your hands. Every time you moved, I sighed. That monologue is spectacular. Yeah. And she, I I would imagine that's, because I believe she won a Golden Globe for this movie or she was nominated. But like, I think she, it had yeah. to be for that specific scene because she's so good in it. And the cast is really good. But this movie, it's like, it's like they spilled cough syrup on it because it's very slow. It's lethargic. Very slow. Yeah. Very lethargic. It's just very, like, nothing really happens in this movie. And then Catherine Hicks, the mom from Seventh Heaven, is in just a whole other movie entirely. And she's just like this wacky ingenue. And it's just a very strange movie. But the performances, I think, um, are like really excellent. I was actually surprised I've never heard of this movie before. Yeah, yeah I mean, Ron, Ron Silver, who kind of never became as big as he maybe should have become as an actor. You know, he was a very political person, almost on the other side as he got older. Um but he's he's you know been great in many movies. His last role is actually he's really good in Find Me Guilty, which is another Sidney Lumet movie, kind of an underrated. It's the one where Vin Diesel has hair, has a has a wig. Oh, and he's guilty. like kind of fat in that movie. Yes. Right? I forgot about that movie. Plays, I just like yeah. when I think about like Latter Day Sidney Lumet, I just think of Before the Devil Knows Your Dad. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, it came. Find Me Guilty came out the year before. And nobody cared about it, right? And yeah. it was kind of Vin's Oscar play, if you want to be – I hate I hate the, saying that. We were talking about this with Meg Ryan. I hate when you would go like, oh, he was searching for an Oscar, so he made this – he made this, you know, I, I hate that. We were, we were talking about – our Meg Ryan episode, we were talking about um, at the time people hating on her performance in When a Man Loves a Woman and saying mm-hmm. it was like Meg Ryan going after an Oscar. And I love that movie, and it always bothers me because it's like – God forbid an actor tries to like do yeah. a, a serious also, movie she's to get really an Oscar. good in it. It's a great movie. Wait till the man loves a woman. I cannot say it enough. Watch the movie. Andy Garcia, also an underrated actor, is great in it too. Um, but yeah, okay. So the thing about Lumet and Connor, tell me if you agree with me. I've seen a lot of his movies, and I think the problem with him in comedies is he came he came up in theater. And he would oh he he is a genius at filming in masters right like sure. wide master shots and I think when you do comedy the editing when you talk about film is so important and I don't know that he ever course corrected when he made his movies to acknowledge that like the comedies need to be faster so like yeah. that's one of the problems like in Garbo talks there are scenes that should be funny but they're shot 
in one shot. And so you kind of lose momentum, kind of Courtney, like you're talking about. You you know, mm-hmm. there's a scene where Ron Silver and Anne Brancroft are talking towards the beginning and they're just having banter, you know, and they're mother and son and it should be funny and the writing's not bad, but the camera never does much. And I feel and like- there's pauses. There's like there, strange right. pauses that could have benefited from, you know, coverage from something. And the yeah. fact that like he, he came up in theater makes so much sense because his best movies- feel like they could be great plays and this right. feels like a really bad boring play <laughs> yeah it's it's i mean what do you think connor what did you like this movie what do you think i thought it was fine i frankly didn't really know what to expect only because and i love Sidney lumet but like you know his output is dicey he's he made he made so many movies right so you i feel like it it, it can be a little bit of a crapshoot if you're not diving specifically into like the greats right and so I didn't really know what to expect. I thought it was largely lovely. I I don't think it's amazing, but the spirit of this movie, I'm like, oh, this feels nice. And I definitely agree with you. Obviously, that monologue at the the Bancroft monologue at the end, really, it's like the reason for the movie. It's like the the whole movie just feels like it exists just so we can see that up. Um, and and get this wonderful outpouring from Anne Bancroft. I also think this movie makes the mistake. And I think it kind of works in this movie because this movie is not as funny as it wants to be, but it makes the mistake. And I think I've mentioned this on the show before that a lot of like comedies make particularly romantic comedies where the, the lead, right, often male lead winds up meeting the other woman, falling in love with her or whatever and the person that they're with is seemingly you know portrayed as like not that great right except when you watch these things you're like this person seems fine right like if you go back and you watch sleepless in seattle like bill pullman seems fine he seems like a you know a, a totally well, fine dude and carrie fisher like they don't even like in sleepless in seattle at least they gave him like allergies like yeah. there's really nothing wrong with <laughs> carrie fisher in this that's, movie for her to be the baxter of this movie that's like there's exactly, just no yeah and then there's like there's that scene where they say goodbye and he takes her to the airplane like it's the weirdest cut. Yeah. For a movie that had like zero cuts, like he just kept it all on the screen. But there's a moment where he said like he upgrades her to first class and he's like, I didn't want your dad to think I'm a schmuck. And she says he will. I'll come back if you want me to. I think it's better this way. really sad we had a perfect marriage all I wanted was home children and security but lately with you it's been one surprise after another I don't want surprises Gilly I paid the difference I didn't want your father to think I was a schmuck he will anyway and it just ends there and it's the strangest cut and it like rattled yeah. me it was just a weird moment but she has this one carrie and i i say all that in service of carrie fisher in this movie because they're really and maybe i'm just also viewing this through like a 2019 lens or whatever there doesn't seem to be that much that's like wrong with her like it's not like it's not like she's back which we'll get to where like she she is a nag in the truest sense of the word and it's a you know, that is in its own way a very like reductive character. But in this, there's like cl- 
you know, she seems perfectly nice. The only seemingly thing wrong with her is that like she kind of just wants like a nice life, you know? Like, well, it's a very New York, LA thing, right? I mean, this, that, it's a very like, you know, Woody Allen in Annie Hall going to LA and hating it, right? I mean, that's like, which is not really a compliment, right? Because it's like, it's a, it's a very, isn't New York awesome? LA sucks. This woman wants to go back to her family with the money in LA. How dare her? You know, yeah, and you're like, why? Okay, but that's not, I mean, it feels perfectly reasonable. Of, like, she feels mm-hmm. like a perfectly reasonable human being in this movie, but I feel like the movie wants to And it doesn't you help that, her. like, Carrie, it's Carrie Fisher who is just yeah. inherently likable, right? And you're yeah. just kind of like, like, your job sucks. Your boss sucks. My dad is going to hand you a really well paying job. And it's like, yeah. well, she's she's about to get shit canned, and we're going to go with mom from Seventh Heaven. Cool. Right. It's such oh a Oh my God. It's that's that's so bizarre, funny. That's the is, mom from Seventh I, Heaven. You're right. It, oh my God. It's very like obviously it's very typical of movies like this so i get the move from a narrative standpoint obviously but when you just look at it pragmatically and practically she seems like maybe the most reasonable person in this whole movie mm-hmm. now so it doesn't you know this movie comes out octor oh sorry octor october uh 1984 uh makes a million and a half dollars i guess you could there's maybe a world where they thought this could be an awards thing, right? I mean, it's Lumet, what have you. Um, doesn't really go anywhere. As we're talking about now, it's not really well remembered. I think, you know, like we're like we're saying, there's a nice scene with Harvey Firestein. Younger Harvey Firestein has a nice scene in this movie. Um, yeah, he's good. Stephen Hill, who you know from movies like The Firm, he has actually a really lovely monologue towards the beginning where he he's um, Anne Bancroft's ex-husband. And he's talking about how he fell in love with Anne, Ban- Anne Bancroft. Her name's Estelle in the movie. And um, so there's a lot to like, but like we're talking about, unfortunately, the general pace is a bit, uh, leaves a bit to be desired. Now, almost on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, only, what, a year or two later, is Penel- the, Pen- the Penelope Spears movie, Hollywood Vice Squad, which is about as long, maybe a little shorter than Garbo Talks and has seven different (laughs) plots in it. And I was reading the very brief New York Times movie review after I watching this movie, and they basically call it like it feels like a failed pilot for a TV show. And I thought that was so well said. That's exactly what it feels like. It's basically... Now, Miami Vice, the show, was very popular at this point. So it almost makes sense that this movie gets made, right? Because that's what it, it, that's what that's it feels what it like. Yeah. It's like, what yeah. if mm-hmm. Miami Vice, but in Hollywood, right? And it's yeah. like you have these two these two vice police officers who – one's Joey Travolta, who is related to John. And um, they're sniffing out one, you know, uh, one – case and then you have young you know whippersnapper cop uh carrie fisher who she's got an angle on another like porn situation happening and believes it's a bigger thing and of course it is and while this is all happening a mother from middle america is coming into town in a very hard if you guys ever seen the movie hardcore with uh with george c scott she's coming in at a dirty la because her daughter ran away and uh, she doesn't know where she is. And that daughter is Robin Wright, who yeah. has a couple of very disturbing scenes in this movie. And um, 
I don't really, I mean, what does one say about a movie like this? It kind of came and went as well. This is another one of these movies. Carrie Fisher seems like she was cut out of this movie. Well, I'll say this. It feels like she, and she, like when you mentioned, because you had watched this before I did. And, yeah. um, and Courtney, did you get a chance to watch this? Yes. Okay. And to say that it feels like a failed pilot is is very accurate. Also, I would add, it feels like two failed pilots. Right, it's two right. episodes of two different TV shows smashed together. Yep. And it is very off-putting. It feels like, it. Fe- I, that's what I was just going to say. Like, it feels... It yeah, feels like this was word. episode one and two of, of the yeah. show Hollywood Vice Squad, and it failed, and they didn't know what to do with them, but they got Carrie Fisher for one of them, so they were like, eh, okay, and they just kind of cut it together in this uh, it, it almost impressionistic look at, um, at, at, at sort of, you know, at the TV version of, uh, of, of like Vice and Hollywood, but it... Yeah, I mean, I guess I would recommend this movie like maybe in like a fun bad way if you're someone who like really just it's digs. on Prime. Uh, a very bad mm-hmm. rip of it yeah. uh, is on Prime. I will say this: um, we're not going to talk about Postcards from the Edge because that's obviously not a B side, but that is a very important movie. Carrie Fisher, of course, wrote um, you know the book, and then I think she wrote the screenplay, right, for the movie. Yes. Um, yes. The Mike Nichols movie. I had to think, if you remember, Meryl Streep is the Carrie Fisher surrogate in that movie. Um, you know how in Postcards from the Edge, there's the scene where she's in the police uniform and like she's right. tied to a cactus or something and they like throw live snakes on them and they mm-hmm. don't tell the actors? This had that had to be based from on this, this movie, right? Yeah, I was thinking that the same thing. That feels very much like that. Yeah. But also like watching the movie. Because I I'm not sure if this was Penelope Spheris's first non-documentary, but it was definitely one of her first non-documentaries. It felt like a documentary, like using like <laughs> yeah. real footage that like was necessary. It was a lot of B-roll. Yep. It was just a. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's a whole entire movie. It's 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 a thing I, that got made. That's for sure. It's a, it's a it's a movie that got made. I mean, it's funny because. Yeah, so I'm just looking. So yeah, I'm just looking at Penelope. That scene where the guy is uh, hanging off the side of the car, that went on for like seven minutes. I I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a joke. It's, uh, and it's, is it Joey? No, it's a different guy. It's not Joey Travolta that hangs off the car, right? No, it's, no, I think it's the, Courtney, you're talking about in the first Carrie Fisher scene, right? Where they have that steam. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So they have this. Yeah, it's just it's just a bland guy that looks like he could have been in like a mystery of science theater yep. like eighties movie, yeah. like just kind of general guy. Sure. They don't like that pushy broad Carrie Fisher. No, oh, that's well, all and I they know. Certainly and don't. Then, that's and for then sure. The Carrie Fisher. The, the what I mean about her being cut out earlier when I said that is, she at the end of the movie, towards the end of the movie, she gets her man. Right, she like jumps out of a window with a guy or something like that and catches him, and then like one of the male officers like looks at her approvingly, yeah. and she looks back, and then she's not in the movie again. Right, her like, episode the, her- of the show is over, and now it's back to that other episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just I just was like, wait, can we just watch Carrie Fisher being in Vice? Like I think this is the other thing about these movies that I kept thinking about, and we'll talk about the Time Guardian and whatever. So much of the time, I just wanted the camera to stay on the Carrie Fisher parts. Yeah, and that sure. was that was another thing that was just a little bit of a bummer. Where it's just 
Yeah, I mean, it's just limited, and she's doing a lot with a little. Um, I mean, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know how that you know. I in in terms of the timing with all of it, and I don't want to speak out of school on it, but I, I imagine part of it was her, to a degree, being uninsurable, right? Like, sure, you know, just mm-hmm. because because of her habits and whatnot. So, I, you know, I. It feels like that's a an underlying thing and kind of obviously a sad underlying thing with a lot of the movies we've been talking about. So that's obviously part of it. But to your point, Dan, I mean, she is she's such an asset. Like it's and one of the things that I've been thinking of as as you know, going through watching all these is that she's so she was so ahead of her time in regards to. You know, I think when she fully leaned into the writing, there was a there was a person that came out of her that was had such an acerbic wit and was just so honest that if if you could put even an ounce of that into some of the things that she was able to do on screen and occasionally was like I was actually in you know in preparation for Star Wars. My fiance and I have been watching, you know, rewatching all the movies and we're just now kind of going through the original trilogy. And just she she has these deliveries as Leia, even even if it's just a look on her face and or or whatever that that um, that speaks volumes, particularly in Empire Strikes Back. But there. Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a huge bummer because you just she is a movie star in the sense, Dan, that you and I talk about every once in a while, where whatever that it thing that a movie star needs to have, like she certainly has it. Like it's, there's just yeah. a, oh, a, totally. a presence, mm-hmm. right? She just lights everything up. Um, and it's, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's such a sad, I, I got real sad watching a lot of these movies. Well, and it like, it's, it makes everyone else's either slower or lazier performances so much more vivid yeah because like in this movie it the the two humans that she's paired with those two guys like (laughs) the white one is so dull and nothing and so like and then you have just like dynamic carrie fisher like you know doing a lot in the scene and everyone else is just like uh woman and that and that's how it felt in um uh garbo talks too yeah. where it's like ron silver is so just like lethargic in this role and then you have carrie fisher and it's it's just it's disconcerting yeah, she's, yeah no, she seems very generous point. in her in mm-hmm. her performances so, um i think you're right courtney i think this is one of the first uh, kind of narrative fiction things that Penelope Spheres did. Another person, by the way, uh, Penelope Spheres, who's like a very honest person in the industry, which I love. Like, you know, if you ever read any of her, any of her interviews when she talks about kind of the Wayne's world, making Wayne's world and the aftermath of that, she's very kind of who gives a fuck, you know what I mean? I'll, I'm going to talk about everything that happened, which I, you know, not unlike Carrie Fisher is so rare and appreciated. So definitely kind of seek out uh, her, uh, her uh, speaking and interviews and, and whatnot. Cause uh, she has a lot to say and it's super interesting. Um, Connor, you want to introduce our next movie appointment with death? So appointment with death, uh, 1988 was a, uh, was a uh, Poirot movie. It was uh it was Peter Ustinov's last turn as uh, as Poirot, uh, theatrically speaking, like in a theater. 
Um, I believe he did like three more um, TV movies after this as Poro. But um, yeah, based based on the novel, uh, the Agatha Christie novel of the same name, it's like a lot of these movies we've been talking about. Ensemble cast, so Carrie Fisher's kind of a, a piece of it. But um, but basically, it's a whodunit that takes place in uh, Jerusalem, I believe, right? And it's the European vacation of Poirot adaptation, is how <laughs> I described it in my notes. Indeed. The, they're all over the place yeah yeah they um it's yeah they start in europe and then i think the the murder in question i think happens in in jerusalem but it basically surrounds uh the chill or the stepchildren of this former prison wardeness um turned sort of like wealthy socialite uh played by piper laurie um who i actually thought was like it, it's weird because Carrie Fisher plays her daughter-in-law, and I remember thinking like, "Oh, it's weird that they're not directly related in this movie because they look like they could be related." But um, but basically, Piper Laurie um, is kind of this very just mean, angry woman who conspires with uh, the family lawyer to essentially take over control of her late husband's estate. Um, from their or his children, I should say. And uh, obviously, that's one of the many things that tees up everybody's motive for ultimately her murder. Um, meanwhile, they they sort of go on this vacation to Europe um, and essentially while this is happening, Poirot just sort of also happens to be there Um with a uh, another friend of his that he meets uh, who's a doctor who also sort of coincidentally finds her way into the sort of goings on of this family half the characters in this movie are there by accident but, yeah, like by, Lauren Bacall and Haley Mills by accident by, yeah pure pure coincidence so which a, is is kind of a Christy thing, right? Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. a little bit of that in her novels it, where it's like, oh, he just wants to go on vacation. And of course, a murder happened and, where he is. And what's a little weird is when I mention, you know, Piper Laurie, uh, you know, she is the victim in question, right? But it 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 happens with like 40 minutes left in the movie. Like there is a significant point. Like most of the movie is just like teeing everything up one by one by one right and it's a it's a pretty like i, I think compared to other pro row adaptations that i've seen it feels really sprawling um in terms of the things going on but um but that's basically the movie it's sort of a standard you know agatha christie whodunit really tries to kind of capitalize on the formula of sort of like veteran actors you know a, a sort of murderer's row of veteran actors type thing um you mentioned lauren mccall is in this uh she was also in murder on the orient express directed by sydney lumet who directed garbo Talks, which is kind of funny but um but yeah that's basically the movie john gilgood's also in this too I loved this. Nice. <laughs> like this was, it was not very good, but I also <laughs> loved it. Like it was not very good, but it was great. Yeah. I, yeah. I feel I, similar. Yeah. In that I, like, respect, coming up, yeah. Like, like I said earlier, like I saw Knives Out twice in a week. And so like, I, like I'm here for whodunits right now. Sure. Right. And uh, so 
uh, Carrie Fisher's the character that's her husband. That's Nicholas Guest, who's the brother of Christopher Guest. Oh, right. and therefore the brother-in-law of Jamie Lee Curtis. Knives out. Hey, no, and I, I, I feel similar, Courtney. I watched this the day after I saw Knives Out, I believe, and so mm-hmm. I was definitely here for it, as it were. Like I was wanting any amount of murder mystery who done it that I could get, and I think this. Basically delivers, right? I mean, Yusinov was a good Poirot. And I think one of the funniest things about this movie is it's a canon films movie. So, like, Mm -hmm. you can tell that they were pinching pennies. Sure. um, The whole movie, because even though it's globetrotting, there's a clear, you know, budget cuttiness of the way that the movie's made and the set design and the production design and locations and... And it, it, when comparing it to something like Lumet's Murder on the Orient Express, that's very clear. You know, like just the difference in, you know, aesthetic. I mean, frankly, but even it doesn't ta- really matter. Talent. Like, I, I, I think, yeah, I think a big, I guess, the biggest detriment to me, because I, you know, I've seen Murder on the Orient Express. I've seen Evil Under the, or, uh, yeah, Evil Under the Sun, and and. Uh, Death on the Nile. Have you guys seen those? The other two mm-hmm. Usenov movies? Uh, I have not seen Death on the Nile. I've seen Evil Under the uh, Sun. This is, at least for me, this is definitely the worst of the three Usenov movies. Um, but it, um, it, and I, th- but I do think a, a large part of it comes down to just like the people on display. Like you have Lauren Bacall, you have Piper Laurie. Uh, and, you and they have, are bringing it both yeah, of them. No, like they are fully I really committed like, and I, delightful. Yeah, I really Piper like, Laurie is so good has, at being evil. Yeah, she has that amazing moment, and they repeat it a couple times in the movie. But where they, just, they, throw, they show that scene like four times. Four times, but where she's like, I don't forget a thing. And she says it stone <laughs> cold. She has this moment where she looks someone dead in the eye and she's like, I never forget. Remember that. I never forget anything. Not an action, not a name, not a face. And it's so like, like it's like, oh my, this woman is going to murder you in your sleep if you even give her like a remote opportunity. She's like scary. It's great. Um, she's really, I think she's really, really great. And, and Bacall is just like hamming it up. She is just like off the rails. Um, and I think, you know, there. I just... When when you compare it to something like Lumet's uh, Orient Express, the I mean that talent just runs deeper. You know what I mean? Like when you look at that cast, it's like Connery and Bergman and Bacall and Albert Finney. You know, like I don't know. It just obviously feels a little bit more full and and a little bit more stacked, but. This um, one clearly had like they were like we have the budget for Lauren Bacall, Piper Laurie, Carrie Fisher. We're just gonna go like subpar on everyone else. I'm almost convinced that Ustinov wasn't even playing Poirot. Like they just found him and they were just like, and he was just he like never stepped out of character. Hey, Peter, so they're just, like, and he's just Peter just snarking it up yeah, here and there. Do the thing you just did, but do it in frame. Thanks. Cool. <laughs> also, she keeps calling them all children, yep. including the one that's supposed to be her actual child. Everyone is in their 30s, <laughs> including like her child daughter. That's like, it's time to go to bed, Ginerva. And she's like, she's 28. Isn't I mean, that's Let probably just a power stand. move, right? Yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. I love this movie. 
No, this is definitely easy to recommend for sure in terms of just these movies we're talking about. And even, you know, Carrie Fisher is not, you know, she's in plenty of this movie. Um, she's not always the focal point. I mean, but like any of these movies, it's an ensemble. So nobody really is the focal point till the end, of course. Um, she's got some nice scenes. I mean, she feels like the most, not unlike a lot of her other performances, she feels like the most in on the joke family member, right? Like she's kind of like, this is all bullshit. You know what I mean? We all know what you're up to. It doesn't matter anyway. Like she has her own plans and but she's like, seemingly very realistic about you know the outcomes and i i did appreciate that because i do think sometimes with these murder mysteries each character has to be a certain type of aloof and and you right. know that their their character traits are so on their sleeve for the purposes of the mystery and it felt like there was a meta thing happening with the way she was playing her character, which I, I could be putting it on cause we're talking about Kier Fisher and she is so like that in real life. And so I will fully admit that that might be me reading into it a little bit too much, but it made the experience, the experience more enjoyable for me, just even having that as a potential angle. Uh, I think it's because like none of the other characters really have personalities or, or, you know, clear motivations outside of like the very pat ones. Sure. That the film presents like she does feel like the most fleshed out character. And as a result, I think she's also one of the only people in the movie that uh, where this movie really worked for me as a whodunit where like. Her interrogation and her moments with Proro were the only moments where I was like, maybe she did it, right? Like, it's mm -hmm. like, and all the other ones, I, it like never really even crossed my mind because I was, it, I, they just sort of were nothing things that were kind of like floating around. And, me, and, you know, and you have to wonder, you know, if this movie has a slightly better budget and you maybe populate it with a couple more like really, really accomplished actors and or movies, even just recognizable mm. faces, right? Um, that is kind of the big thing of this movie where it's just like, because spoiler alert, Lauren Bacall did it. But you know that because why else would Lauren Bacall be in this movie? Exactly, exactly. Like, And <laughs> like, it's... It's a, it's a such a, yeah, I don't know. It's such a strange. I'm going to, I'm going to spoil taking lives. If neither of you guys have seen that Angelina Jolie, <laughs> DJ Caruso I'm classic. Sure. No, I, but no, I, you, you is that okay? Courtney, is that okay? I've not I, seen it. Oh, spoil it. Spoil yeah, spoil it so good. So th this is my taking lives theory, which is Ethan Hawke is in taking lives. And I remember being like, why is Ethan Hawke in taking lives? And then you watch the movie, you're like, Oh, because he's the killer. You know what I mean? Like, like, right. like yeah. 10 minutes into the movie, you're like, obviously this esteemed actor who's in this like B movie. You know, it's a very, mm -hmm. it's a problem. It's a and problem it, well, with it's, movies because you want to cast that person. But it's something you have to do. And I won't, I won't talk about this movie in depth, but it's the reason I think something like Knives Out is a success as a whodunit and most successful whodunits work this way is you have to stack it with movie stars to avoid something like that. Right. right. Like right. You, you have to have at least like three or four movie stars taking, quote unquote, thankless roles or whatever. Right. Because that's part of what keeps keeps it interesting. Right. And this movie, I feel like it, it, the only reason Carrie Fisher stood out, you know, and she didn't ultimately commit the murder. But the only reason to me, at least that, that you know, that she sort of even piqued any kind of intrigue was because she was a, a recognizable face and b kind of the only one really trying to seemingly do much of anything. The rest of the cast is just potatoes and wigs. Like they're giving yeah. nothing. <laughs> 
They are doing nothing. The brother I, that has a whole love story, he's oh doing God, he's nothing. The worst. He's the worst. He's the worst. And I do think he's like a director now, and he seems to have directed like good things. Good for him. That that is not your yeah your thing. And I'm glad you found your thing because this was not it. That dude. That dude was like a. He was like a college sweater come to life. Like that's he like really was. That's like what he looked like to me. But, Sweater, um, bringing it back to Knives Out. Yep. <laughs> yeah, Nicholas Nicholas Guest to that point um, is also mostly a voice actor these days, which I think is interesting. He used to be on the show USA High, which was yes. like a teen Saved by the Bell type movie, and he was British on that show, and that's all I remember about USA High. <laughs> and his name was Headmaster Patrick James Elliott. I'm reading on his Wikipedia right now. <laughs> Three names. His so. daughter on Three the show names. went on to play Princess on That's My Bush, Come which on. I am the only. Wow. One that watched that show. Wow, <laughs> that's my bush. I love it. That brings me um, that brings me back to like a, just a certain place in time, a very specific Amen. time. Yeah, um, a time when we were all watching Xenon and this and yeah, the then, sequels. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Connor, this is this next movie is going to really just be Connor focused because Connor <laughs> spoiled ahead of this uh, recording. He spoiled that he loves this movie, this horrible, I, horrible okay, movie. So the next movie the time, we're going to so talk quickly, about. So quickly, I'm going to introduce it yeah, and I'm going to let go, you do whatever the fuck it. you want. <laughs> go for the it. The Time Guardian, the Time uh, Guardian, <laughs> uh, which I think is Australian financed, Australian distributed, came out in 87, starring Tom Berlinson, who is the man from Snowy River himself, Tom Berlinson, and Carrie Fisher. And it ultimately was released in 89 in the U.S. And that's all I'm going to say. Connor, why do you love this movie? Why okay. is this your no, favorite I, movie ever made? My favorite movie of all time? Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, no, so I revealed to Dan that this was maybe the, the one that stood out to me the most among all the ones that we watched. Because I had seen, actually, I'd seen most of uh, Appointment with Death before we decided to do this. Um, but... Um, but this movie, this definitely fits in for me into that fun, bad category. Like it's, it's terrible. It's super cheesy, but I could totally, um, you know, for anybody listening who maybe remembers this, you know, if you're a New York local, but like in the videology movie tri trivia days, RIP, um, I could totally see this like being on the screen and just like watching it with a couple beers and like really enjoying it. Um, but it it basically it's essentially like Star Wars meets Terminator, right, Dan? From just a, a plot. Uh, yeah, it's standpoint. Star Wars it's meets like Terminator meets the worst movie. There's ever like made. a third. <laughs> yeah, there's like a third thing in there too. But yeah, yeah those are the main two. It, yeah, it's basically about this. It's got Dean Stockwell in it as well. In addition, to, in addition to Carrie Fisher. Um, but it's basically about this city that is being essentially pursued through time because the people who inhabit this future city it's sort of like a matrixy type thing it's like the last human city right and um and it they have essentially cracked time travel so the only way to get away from this race of beings that's like you know they're essentially space-time pirates or, or what have you uh they they basically just keep bouncing around through time and um, until these guys show up again and try and kill them and then they bounce around through another time. And so they send these people ahead to sort of lay the landscape as it were so that they can arrive somewhere 
and uh, they are time guardians, basically. And one of these people is Carrie Fisher. She is chosen for this her particular role in the movie because she's essentially like an expert on, you know, twentieth, just pre twenty first century uh, um, culture, essentially. So she has to go ahead to like help them blend in. Does not work at all, obviously, um, but. Basically, the uh, the lead character um, who is named Ballard uh, and uh, Carrie Fisher's name is Petra, by the way. So Ballard and Petra go ahead and essentially. Basically, they they realize they don't have what they need in terms of like the city gets broken. Do you recall this, Dan? Like, I mean, yeah, kind of. It, it, it's, it's it's not so... really worth going into, but basically they need to like prep for the city to arrive. So th- he has to then like get a hold of a, you know, a bulldozer to move some earth. So the city has like a proper foundation to land on. So that third thing you were thinking of, Dan, actually is Bob the Builder. So yes, it basically exactly. is Terminator. Or, or, yeah, or men at work. Yeah. Terminator meets Star Wars meets Bob the Builder. Um, and that's basically it. Then the city shows up and then the bad guys show up and they have to fight them off. Meanwhile, Ballard meets a woman named Annie who's an Australian local. She's a geologist, coincidentally, so she helps him with his, you know, his earth moving, as it were. And they fall in love a la Terminator, right? Man from the future and whatnot. And the bummer, again, to your point earlier, Dan, Carrie Fisher gets shot in the opening battle in the movie. And then basically, you know, they both teleport into the, into, uh, you know, 20, 20, late 20th century, um, Australia as it were. And, uh, and Carrie Fisher basically spends the whole movie like recouping. That's like basically she has one, she has one kind of nice scene with Anne, who's Nikki Coghill. So they have like one, okay scene together uh where Carrie Fisher's wounded and they're just chatting and then spoilers for the time card the guardian a movie that you would only be able to find unless if connor sent you the link <laughs> that he had to make from two different rips so yeah not much of a spoiler but i had to jump through a few hoops for uh to, to find connor, the joke i is cordy the joke i make with connor about when we do these b-sides is like he's had to make like like three different versions of movies like throughout the yeah. the episode so we have to like make a youtube channel that will ultimately get taken down of like the ribs that you've made of these like d side movies that yeah, we're talking we have about a, we have an upcoming movie we have an up or we have an upcoming episode uh i won't mention who it is but it'll be our first episode in the new year where there was one movie that i just you, I just went through insane lengths to try and track it down to the point where I did something similar to what I did with this movie, where I found video of it somewhere, but the audio was in another language, but I found uh, an English version of it with terrible video quality. So I cut them apart and put them together. <laughs> and was it worth it? Uh, was it? I actually haven't watched that movie yet. So <laughs> I, 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 was it worth it for this one, Connor? Kind That's the of, real question. Kind of, Cause it's this weird, it's this, and this is sort of, I guess why we do it now to be fair to your point, Dan, this is like a D side. This movie is, yeah, this oh, movie no, yeah. has been and should be forgotten. What I kind of liked about it is there are moments where, and I wrote this in my notes, like the budget shines through <laughs> where like there are and these 
maybe this is also because this is the last one that I watched. So I, you know, maybe I just got, I got worn down to a point where I'm like, well, this is whatever, you know, but, um, but there are scenes early on when they're in the future city and they're in, you know, Ballard's apartment, for instance, and it's lit a certain way. And the production design isn't the worst where like, and I mean, this is a compliment. It feels like a, like a just just above B-level version of Blade Runner, like visually speaking, in some shots. And you can clearly see that like those were the ones where they tried. <laughs> and then like by the end, by the end of the movie, the climax of this movie, I guess Mad Max is the third thing, right? That that third movie. Well, been, well, the right? guy who I mean, Brian Hannett worked on Mad Max 2. So the guy right. who directed this movie when he was making Mad Max 2, um, will will pen a pound in south australia was like the it was a location it was an inspiration for this movie so there's a direct connection to the mad max movies and obviously when you watch this australian outback you know it's like there's elements that are very reticent uh reminiscent rather of um of mad max but you know with uh, you know less than the budget of the first mad max potentially you know what i mean it's so funny it's like but it basically the movie it makes you appreciate george miller more is what i'm saying a thousand percent because i and it does make you realize what a it just makes you realize what a good director does these movies i mean watch the watch this in comparison to the first terminator right like another movie that like just did just miles of things with a relatively shoestring budget Right. To convince you of the future worlds that it put in front of you and deftly navigates the rest of the movie to present to you like a romance and a horror movie. Right. And this movie clearly tries to do that and end it tries to end in some sort of like spaghetti Western esque like rating that, you know, almost Magnificent Seven ish rate, you know, the bad guys rating the uh, the Australian town. Um, it, but it and it doesn't none of it really works. But it is just fascinating to me from a from just a filmmaking standpoint, because there are moments where you can see that they like clear like they didn't have no money, but where they choose right, to put right. their money was what was super fascinating to me. So that was I guess that's kind of my take on this movie, just navigating it from that lens. I was super fascinated by it. Uh, Carrie, it worked exactly well enough for you to compare it to Blade Runner. <laughs> well, no, I guess that's my point. It's, it, not, you know, it is it. It bears comparison because you can tell that that is like in the minds of the people. Well, I guess no, because it got made at roughly the same time, wouldn't it have, right? Of what? Blade Runner? No, Blade Runner is 1982. No, I guess so. It would have been out for a few years. It would have been out for a long time, yeah. Yeah. One one thing that's crazy to me, and I'll use this as kind of a gentle segue to our kind of last movie. uh, The New York Times reviewed this movie, The Time Guardian. Interesting. <laughs> but did not have a review, at least from my research, of this last movie, which is She's Back, which came out in 1989, July 7th, IMDb tells me. So, and, and is kind of positioned as a real movie, right? You know, like Kara Fisher is the lead of this movie. And there's like no record of it. And so that's just another weird thing um, with this this final movie, She's Back, where I'm like, how did the Time Guardian get any coverage? But I guess it's just one of those things. It depends. I mean, maybe it, maybe this movie She's Back is just kind of lost in time. And I, I don't, 
I certainly like, I'll say this. I like the Time Guardian more than She's Back. I think She's Back is probably, if I'm being honest, my least favorite Mm. of the ones that we've talked about. It's basically a movie about Carrie Fisher and her husband and she's nagging them and nagging them and they're moving into a new house and it's in a bad neighborhood and she is yelling at the movers because they're messing with her stuff and she's like nagging them and the movers and da 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 and then that night i guess one of the movers is a criminal right and they like tell like all these gang so members is, he, is the gang member one so. of the movers because the think way so that because scene is cut is so bizarre because it cuts to him and I yeah, thought this whole movie is and I yeah. thought it was he was one of the movers and then it just like well, then they reveal that he was just like scoping it out yeah. so like I w- I was very curious as to like what's anyway. what's weird about this movie it came out I believe eighty nine is the same year as Postcards from the Edge so it's kind of funny to think about that but um, it seems like a movie Carrie Fisher if she wrote it it would actually be pretty interesting because it is very acerbic yeah. and cutting and, you know, and all of the things you would think Carrie Fisher would really kind of like dig into in a smart, intelligent way. Cause basically what happens is these criminals invade their house at night and uh, the husband just is basically like, let him take this stuff. Like, we'll just be quiet. Like, you know, it's okay. But Carrie Fisher won't have that. She confronts them and she gets brutally murdered. Right? Gets murdered. He gets beaten within an inch of his life. They leave. And then she's a ghost for the rest of the movie. And the whole movie is her just convincing her her cuckold husband to get revenge on the whole gang. So he literally becomes a vigilante every night and just in very gruesome ways kills all of these people, these criminals, with her as a ghost basically egging him on and nagging him and egging him and all and of the her, egging, all of the different it's, kinds it's of her, egging. It's the worst, it's, it, this is the worst, like this is her worst performance of all these movies in terms of her herself, right? Like Carrie, because it's just- Which is a bummer because it's, other than it's Under very the Rainbow, a it's one or the, yeah. it's the only one really where she is like a lead. Like a lead, yeah. Yeah, and it, but it also seems like there's a way to make a movie like this if, if, uh, if someone like Carrie Fisher perhaps had more control that would be funny, right? Like, would be co- there would be a commentary, there would be a social, you know, awareness and something happening. But this is not that movie, unless Connor, you saw something different. No, like, no, it's no, no, very I, it, hard to watch. No, it's. I mean, I granted, I this was a movie for me where like the setup kind of went a long way, where I was like, okay, like I, I really was trying to go with it, you know, for for a lot of the movie. It's not funny enough to be for the dark moments that it has right where where at least if it was funnier you could be like ah but it is it does have really funny moments it's not funny enough um and it's not dark enough to just straight up also be some kind of like a weird supernatural like horror thriller or whatever right so it's a it's in a really weird spot tonally um it's very mean like she's very mean and in a way that could be fun to your point Dan like there there are moments in this where like I the the one scene that I was like oh maybe if this is what this movie's going to be it'll be great it's a little early on it's like right after she's died it's the first scene where she comes back and talks to uh to Robert Joy who plays her husband Paul and um and basically 
the first thing she does because she's a nag or whatever. The first thing she does though is complain about like he asks her, he was like, how was the coffin? And she was like, eh, I didn't love it. And like, then he, like she goes on, she, she doesn't want to say anything, but then she goes in and starts to dig on like the dress that they buried her in and the makeup that they put on her face and all this stuff. And it's this one moment that's like pretty funny and kind of, you know, it's an interesting peek into like what the movie could be conceptually. Right. Um, I agree with that. But it, but it takes a, just a different, it decides to be a different movie entirely, which is so bizarre. There's another man who's, um, he's a neighbor, right. Who also works at, uh, he works at like the garbage dump, the landfill, right. Where, where Robert Joy has been trying to dispose of these bodies and he winds up catching him essentially. And, but like wanting to join in, so he like basically is like like pushes Robert Joy into like you know really diving into all this vigilante stuff and it just escalates and escalates and like in a in a home alone esque climax where the gang members come to the house and they've armed themselves with makeshift weapons um it is uh yeah i don't know it's 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 such a bizarre movie like I guess I would, you know, if you really want to see kind of just what Carrie Fisher's output was like, I would, I would recommend it, I suppose. Um, I don't know if you can act. I mean, I rent, I rented it on Amazon, but I don't know if you can access it. Uh, otherwise. Yeah, you can rent. I mean, it's available to rent. I don't think it's streaming anywhere. I mean, just to correct myself, Postcards comes out in 1990, which is a year after this. And then I think, look, after this... She makes another small movie, I think, the next year, Postcards Come Out. And then I think the 90s, for her, she takes it back a little bit and becomes more of a writer, right? She's a becomes a script doctor. She um, she contributes to a lot of different movies. She um, wrote the – from the research I did, I saw she wrote the dialogue for Rene Russo's character in, Le- in Lethal Weapon 3, mm-hmm. um, which I yeah. thought was super and interesting. Then, and then Courtney, I think on your podcast you guys mentioned, right? Uh, she ghost wrote uh, Sister Act, right? Yeah, she or she was at least a script director on it. But yeah, yeah she did yeah. a she did a ton of stuff. And also at that same time, that's probably right around when her daughter was born. So I think a combination of like choosing to write and then also just like being the you know kind of the mom that Debbie was not necessarily able to be and things like that. So now I want to mention in. in while we talk about her as a writer, uh, obviously, and kind of as we're wrapping up to some degree, heavy recommend for postcards from the edge. I don't know if do we all do we all agree yeah, with that? Of course, in terms absolutely. Of, of course, yeah. yeah, great, great movie. Um, kind of, kind of underrated. I feel like kind of gets forgotten in a weird way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in in the in the Mike Nichols canon, I think it's less quite lesser known. Um, uh, she wrote a movie that I watched called These Old broads which was a tv movie from 2001 and it stars um and i want to make sure i get this right it stars debbie reynolds um it stars elizabeth taylor it stars joan collins and it stars our who is the i'm gonna find out the fourth debbie lady reynolds in and this elizabeth taylor well, hang on, hang on. It's better. Okay. Shirley MacLaine, Debbie Reynolds, Joan Collins, and Elizabeth Taylor. Okay. And That's the premise bananas. of the movie, yeah, made for, tele, made for TV movie, 2001, directed by Matthew Diamond. The premise of the movie is 
um, they re-released this old 1960s film musical called Boy Crazy, and it gets a, a surprise amount of acclaim and money in like a random weekend in the 1990s. And it's starring these three famous movie stars from back in the day. And those three are played by uh, Shirley MacLaine, Debbie Reynolds, and Joan Collins. And a TV exec gets the idea to reunite them for a like TV special kind of, you know, uh, capitalizing off of the surprise success of the re-release. The only problem is they hate each other. Of course, these old broads, ha ha ha. And they all have the same agent who is played by Elizabeth Taylor, who um, her and Shirley MacLaine's adopted son, played by Jonathan Silverman, can basically work together to get them to agree to do the special. And there is a scene in this movie where Debbie Reynolds and Liz Taylor have a conversation, a thinly veiled conversation about like the Eddie Fisher. Interesting. Like, like version of, you know, fictionalized version in which Liz Taylor and Debbie Reynolds like confront each other about it. And it is like worth, worth the price of, renting it for $3 on iTunes or whatever, because, and also it's, you know, it's written by Carrie Fisher, um, Carrie Fisher and Elaine Pope. And it has a lot of funny moments. It's very broad. It's not some great hidden comedy or whatever. Uh, What'd you say? It's old too. Yeah. yeah, It's it's broad and old. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's also these, um, but of course, I would recommend it for a couple really good scenes. Debbie Reynolds is funny. She's kind of like playing aloof you know, but then there's hidden depths to her. Joan Collins is like, you know, the sexed up one of the of the, of the three of them. Elizabeth Taylor's not in a lot of it, um, but the scene between her and Debbie Reynolds is pretty great. I was like, wow, this this is out there for people to watch. Just these two old these two old friends talking about you know the mean things that happen. It's pretty interesting. That's what I love about Carrie Fisher. Not only is she going to be super open and honest about like everything in her family, every skeleton, but she's gonna actually just like pull the power move of like, "Hey, mom, Liz, talk about it. Talk about dad." Yeah, right. That's that's and then I bananas mean, to me. That's so and cool. I re- and look, and you gotta respect. You know, you gotta respect these old starlets. You know, these like at that time for doing it. I mean, it, like I said, it's, I, I don't know how it was received at the time. Oh, one, you know what I mean? It was ABC was the network that released it. It's, you know, it's a 90 minute TV movie. Um, but it's worth checking out. I would say, I mean, certainly something I didn't even know was out there until we did this episode. And once again, this is why we do this podcast. Like that alone is worth, you know, yeah. watching She's Back, right? It's like, you're like, and like, also, uh, uh, you can look this up. Carrie Fisher uh, wrote an episode of Young Indiana Jones. I saw, yeah, that was one of Sean the things. Sean Patrick Flannery. She also, I believe, did uh, did some punch-ups on um, dialogue for the prequel trilogy, I believe. I did not know that. Yeah, I I did not. I mean, that was a Wikipedia thing. So who knows he, how true that even is? Courtney, can you speak to that at all? Do you know? I I did not know about the prequels. I know that she uh, definitely you know put her mark on some of the moments in the originals, but it's kind of not something that like was super talked about necessarily sure. because you know why give the credit to to this 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 actress type she also she also you know she talks very i mean i would two things uh, totally worth seeking out um she did 
right before she passed, right after she released The Princess Diarist, which uh, which is the book in which she sort of revealed uh, her her three month, I believe, affair with Harrison Ford uh, during the making of Star Wars. Um, but she uh, she talks about that on an episode of Fresh Air. Uh, very openly and but but her experience as leia in general and she one of the things she talks about that she dives into uh is specifically uh, her wardrobe in return of the jedi and how shooting the scene in which she strangles jabba the hut was just one of the most cathartic things for her um and uh, so that interview in general i would encourage you to uh to seek out. She's super honest about a lot of things in it. And it's, it's, uh, it's a good listen. Yeah. I'll, I'll link to that in the description in, uh, for, for, in the podcast article, a couple other, just, uh, you know, as we're kind of finishing up, uh, check her out in Hannah and her sisters. She's great in the burbs. Um, Courtney mentioned soap dish. She's great in that. Um, some of the rumored slash confirmed um, script doctoring she did was in movies like Hook. We talked about Sister Act, The Wedding Singers, another one. Right, that was the um, other that, one that's come up. So you know she has a lot of output, whether or not she was credited for it or not. And I think, look, I like the Star Wars movies fine, and I I love the Last Jedi, and I really uh, Force Awakens. I think is is pretty good. Um, but I think if any. The best thing to happen with these new episode seven, eight, and nine movies coming out, and Connor, you kind of said this earlier, is Carrie Fisher being rediscovered? And if that means that even a few people who love Leia and love, you know, you know, general Leia, you know, um, in these new movies can find wishful drinking and can read her books, can read wishful drinking and the princess diarist and postcards from the edge and see you know, that movie and, and, and all, and all that stuff. I, I feel like it's, it's really helpful. And I think that's almost the, I would probably be the most grateful for that with the new Star Wars movies. I mean, it's great that they're out and I'm excited for episode nine, um, you know, as much as anybody else, but that just makes me excited that there is like, even though she's sadly not with us anymore, her legacy feels like it's in good hands and feels like she's going to get a nice send off with rise of Skywalker. And, you know, people are going to talk about, more than just Leia. And I feel like that's, of course, you know, she never shied away from the Leia uh, character and she was very gracious. It, it always seemed like with her fans, uh, certainly seems like that from the documentary Bright Lights. Um, and But I would hope more and more people kind of discover the other stuff too, which is great. Speaking of discovering new things, I wanted to do a quick shout out to J. Michael McGill, at J. Michael McGill, who um, tweeted at me specifically and asked, um, suggested a couple of films if we were doing a B-side for the upcoming Star Wars. I had mentioned we were uh, doing another actress, obviously Carrie Fisher, but I wanted to shout out his suggestions. Um, I caught up with these movies and I, some quick thoughts. So Daisy Ridley in Ophelia, Came out a couple years ago. I caught it at Sundance, actually. Weird movie, melodramatic movie. It's basically a retelling of Hamlet from the point of view of Ophelia. Daisy Ridley plays Ophelia. It's it's campy, right? I don't even know if it's intended to be so. It feels like it was. I watched it like it was. You got Naomi Watts in there. You got Clive Owen. A lot of screen chewing going on. I enjoyed it. I didn't love it or anything, but... I'd recommend it. Um, 
just is a kind of weird indie movie. It, it never went anywhere. It barely came out. Um, but at the festival, I enjoyed it. And look, this is one of these things we've talked about this before. You, when you're at these festivals, sometimes movies hit at the right time, right? And and that was an example of you don't get a lot of Ophelia's at Sundance, right? You don't get a lot of campy costume dramas with A-list actors, right? That feels like that might be something you might see at a Toronto or something like that. So when I saw it at Sundance, I enjoyed it because it was a palate cleanser for me. I remember it quite vividly in that respect. And I like Daisy Ridley. I like Daisy Ridley. I love her performance as Ray. And I, I've i liked her in the Murder on the Orient Express movie. And I just generally am rooting for her as a movie star. So that's part of it, too. I just I liked her doing something else having fun with a, you know, a famous literary character. So yeah, I, I soft recommend on that one. Um, another recommendation was John Boega in the movie Imperial Dreams, which is another Sundance movie. And this one's a little weird. Won an award at Sundance in 2014. It didn't show up on Netflix as a Netflix movie until 2017. So I'm curious what ended up happening if it was just a matter of distribution and, you know, negotiation and just never really you know hits and they you know the people who made the movie were playing hardball you know who knows but i hate to say that's probably the thing i'm most interested about with imperial dreams i it's an interesting enough premise it's basically boega plays a ex-con young man comes back um into the imperial projects in la and is is a writer wants to be a writer he's published i think a story coming out of prison and his hope is to you know um make that into career of course that's hard he's got a parole officer he's got to get a job immediately he's got the cops on the block you know waiting awaiting his arrival he's got criminals in the family uh i think you know a wayward uncle right stuff like that people who are making hard from kind of a very Pretty straightforward telling. He's got a young son. Uh, really nice performance uh, by the child who plays Boyega's son. Boyega is good. I like him as well. Maybe not as much as Daisy Ridley, just in terms of their current output. Um, I wanted a little bit more from this movie. One thing I'll say about Imperial Dreams, I feel like I've said this before. When you make movies in which the your main character is a writer... And the writing is meant to be good enough to be recognized and successful. If the writing actually isn't good enough or feels like it's derivative in the movie, it makes the whole thing harder. And I I feel like that's one of the problems with this movie. I didn't believe that this guy was truly a great writer in what we were hearing of his writing in the movie. That's one of those things. It's tough. I, it's a pretty quick movie. There's some strong performances in it. It's on Netflix. If you like Boega, I would say check it out. But as a, as it's as a standalone picture, it's hard to recommend. If I'm being honest, we have Adam Driver, the uh, J. Michael McGill recommended tracks. Uh, I will say, uh, I had seen tracks before. I thought I had, but then when I put it on Letterboxd, I made it a first watch because I I might have been confusing with the movie Cracks <laughs> with Ava Green. Either way, this is an interesting movie. It's about Robin Davidson, who um, was an Australian adventurer, 
in this movie played by Mia Wasikowska. And Adam Driver is the National Geographic photographer who photographs her. She does a 1,700-mile walk across Australia. Pretty famous thing. She's pretty well-known, Robin Davidson. Some great photos if you look her up um, by the Adam Driver character uh, whose real-life person's name escapes me. Forgive me. But um, I like the movie. It's directed by John Curran. I'm a pretty big fan of John Curran. I've liked most of his output. I liked We Don't Live Here Anymore. Um, I liked the movie um, The Painted Veil quite a bit with Edward Norton and Naomi Watts. Um, And I even like Stone, which was Edward Norton and Robert De Niro and Mila Jovovich. I think it was an Overture Films movie. Really weird movie in which Edward Norton plays a convict. And I believe De Niro's his parole officer. And it's it's a kind of a con movie. Very weird, interesting, curio type of movie. A lot of good performances in that. Edward Norton has cornrows. So that's a John Kern movie. I like tracks quite a bit. It's a bit slow, which I suppose makes sense because the whole movie's about um Robin Davidson walking, you know almost 2,000 miles, and every once in a while, Adam Driver coming by in a car to take photos of her. Um, There's a lot of camels in the movie. Uh, She worked hard to get camels to help her make the journey. That animal acting is unbelievable. I I don't think I've ever seen camels on screen the way they're on screen in this movie. So that alone, if you're a fan of like that type of stuff, just even from a production aspect, it's kind of interesting just to watch Wasikowska act with camels. it gets a bit obvious, not surprisingly, right? It's weird. I mean, it's one of these things. It's a fascinating story, but when you put it on screen, you know, basically this woman didn't like people very much, right? And she had, you know, she wrote the book called Tracks, which the movie's based on. She's very open about that. Like she preferred being alone. And the movie's about her kind of coming to terms with, you know, needing some sort of community in her life, right? Um, As she's making this very lonely journey. That being said, she is an inherently inward person. And I think Wasikowska does a great job with that. And she is the right person to cast in the role. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of place, there's not a lot of openings for the viewer in which to join this character on her journey, if that makes sense. The driver character is that option and he is it's a very supporting role but he is good in the movie but it almost doesn't feel like it's enough you're with her so much alone and even though Wasikowska is a great actress and the camera loves her and she does great work with her camels and all that if you feel removed which I almost feel like was part of Curran's point for a lot of the movie but inherently that's going to make it a little bit harder to watch so that's just something to look out for I'm a, we've talked about Matt we on the Matt Damon podcast we talked about Jerry I'm a big fan of Jerry. This is a good example of this is the difference of having two people walking in the desert as opposed to one and me loving Jerry as opposed to liking tracks. It's a bit of a derivative thing there, but uh, it is what it is. All right. The worst one of these four and the final one is Suburbicon, in which Oscar Isaac co-stars. This movie is directed by George Clooney. Matt Damon's a star with Jul- Julianne Moore. I'll admit, uh, this was a first watch for me because I tried to watch it when it was out and about a couple of years ago, and I really didn't like it. And I actually stopped watching it after about 25 minutes. So I didn't log it, obviously, in any letterbox or anything because I didn't finish it. I finished it because of you, J. Michael. And um, 
I hate to say my worst uh, suspicions were confirmed. I really did not like this movie. This is kind of an ugly American tragedy, satire. Clooney's going real dark. So the story about this one is Clooney basically had a script with Grant Haslov, his writing partner, producing partner, as I understand it, about the Myers family that moved into one of the Long Island suburbs this is in real life right and i don't know if their name was myers in real life but in the movie their name are, is the myers and it's basically a black family moves into an all-white neighborhood as integration's happening and the, the long islanders go crazy and stuff gets very racist and very mean okay that's interesting of course and sad and you know something that should be you know made and brought to light and talked about. Now they took this script and they combined it with a Coen Brothers script that's more of a, you know, a Coen Brothers crime dark comedy thing. So they combine these two things. So the Matt Damon part of the movie is he is a husband at a, you know, a accounting job of some sort and he's married to Julian Moore. Julian Moore has a twin sister. And young Noah Jupe is is the son who he's gaining traction. He's in Honey Boy. He's in Ford v. Ferrari this year. Great young actor. Basically, there's this very dark crime comedy that's not that funny happening while this black family is trying to deal with racism as they try to integrate into Suburbicon, which is the name of this fictional, um, you know, Levittown-esque, uh, you know, place. It never gels. I don't really understand what the thinking was. I, I understand it at a top level of why they thought they could do it, but the focus is squarely mostly on Matt Damon and Julianne Moore, and the Myers family is largely supporting to the point where it's, it's almost the point it's trying to uh, outline of like these African-American people in history are relegated to the side. It's it the movie's doing itself by making that family not an essential character. So that alone is strange. And then just the performances are off. Like Matt Damon is an inherently likable person, right? And though he's been weird and mean, movies like Talented Mr. Ripley, uh, you know, his little bit in Interstellar, he is full out, and this is a spoiler, so stop right now and skip ahead two minutes. He is full out evil in this. And it just does not like I had trouble. You know, and, and let alone it's not funny enough to kind of justify it. Julianne Moore feels lost, which is a weird thing to say because she's one of our great actresses. And Oscar Isaac is barely in the thing. Um, he is the best part of the movie. He is an insurance claims agent and shows up halfway through the movie with like two feels like very Coen Brothers written scenes and is wonderful. And I was so angry with Clooney and Hesloff and everybody else involved that they didn't give him more time because Isaac is really the only bright spot in this movie, him and Noah Jupe, honestly. Um, do not watch this movie. I hate to say it, but, you know, Clooney as a director is interesting because he started with Good Night and Good Luck, which is I love. And then it kind of, it's it's hit or miss after that, which I think is a very interesting thing. He's a funny guy. I have not watched the Catch-22 Hulu series, but um, I've seen all of his features. And it's interesting, the trajectory of his, his career as a filmmaker. Uh, I'll be curious to see what he makes next. Anyway, that's what I've got uh, for those suggestions, just as a little aside before we wrap up. Courtney, any final Carrie Fisher thoughts before we head out into this good night? Um, I just love her. 
I just love her. She just she means a lot to me, always has. And I'm very excited to see what they do uh, with Leia for The Rise of Skywalker. And I just saw in uh, in some IMDb trivia that Rise of Skywalker will only be the second time she's ever received top billing. The first being she's back. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love it. Wow. So <laughs> top billing for Rise of Skywalker. I love that. I don't think I knew that. That's awesome. Um, well, we'll finish up, Courtney, where just tell people where they can find you and what you do one more time. Yeah, you can find my stuff at uh, Sci-Fi Fangirls, where I'm the associate editor. You can listen to my other podcasts. Uh, I do trends like these with Travis McElroy and Brent Black. And then uh, Strong Female Characters, that's the Sci-Fi Fangirls podcast. And you can find me on Twitter at Cordenlow. And I'll recommend, I was kind of just reading some of your stuff, listening to some of your stuff today over the weekend, and I reread the Vanity Fair thing you wrote about Britney Spears. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Which is great. So I'll link to that along with the other stuff. That's just a specific recommend about how fucking horrible we treated Britney Spears, Um, Mm -hmm. which which Connor, me and you have a memory. Do you remember, this is a total, uh, me and you were like driving a a, a cube truck and what, what Brittany had like she had a hit that came out a few years ago and it was kind of out of nowhere but it was like a summer hit I can't think of what it was but it came on and me and you were in the car and I was like is this Britney Spears and you were like I think so we turned to each other and I was like good for her it might I think it very <laughs> good it for you, if I recall it was uh uh dance until the world ends I think that, I love I think, that song. I think that was the I think that was the track. But yeah, it was that kind of feeling. And I think everybody had that feeling when she uh, when she had that song. You're like, well, oh, good. For Carrie you. Fisher is quite probably one of my favorite people in the world. Second, Brady. I love it. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna. And we're I gonna love them you. for the same reasons. Much maligned, they are okay. Have mental health struggles, and I love them. We're gonna we're gonna have you back for a crossroads only. Oh, <laughs> episode! Hell yes! A Shonda Rhimes focused uh, Crossroads plus episode. I will talk episode. about Crossroads all day. I can do a two. I can do a two parter just on Crossroads. I, one about the cross I, and then the roads for sure. We yeah. we worked we worked with Shonda Rhimes on a just a, on a commercial or something, and I it killed me. It was it took everything to me not to walk up to her and be like Shonda. So what's up with Crossroads? Do you wrote Crossroads? <laughs> tell me about it. Shonda, are you a girl? Are you yet a woman? Is all <laughs> Shonda, you need time. Tell me about it. I think Shonda would have uh, eschewed me, to say the least. Um, All right, Connor, where can people find you? Uh, You can find my byline occasionally on the film stage. Uh, You can also find me on Twitter at Scruffy Looking. Um, And uh, you can follow this podcast on Twitter at TFS B-Side. We are, this is our now our second episode that we are simultaneously releasing on our new feed. We're going to start weaning over more and more things just onto the new feed coming into the new year. So you can, uh, you can find us on Apple and Spotify and Stitcher as well as SoundCloud. It's, uh, the, All B- the, places. Yeah, the B side, a film stage podcast. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. We got some cool stuff coming up. We'll be doing a, uh, holiday episode. Um, so to, you know, keep your ears peeled for that. But, uh, but yeah, we got some cool stuff coming up and some, uh, some cool guests and episodes in the new year. Yeah. In which I, in the holiday episode in which I will be talking about the Ben Affleck Christmas movie, surviving Christmas, which is one of the worst movies ever made. <laughs> Excited to talk about it. Um, <laughs> now, 
Uh, you can find me in the film stage at DJ Mecca at TFS B side. Keep listening to the film stage show as well. They got a lot of good stuff coming out. They try to cover as many Oscar contenders as they can as we get deeper into December. So on your holiday break, take a listen. Um, but until then, I'll let Connor, as always, close us out. I'm going to just wise words from Carrie Fisher. Quote, I highly recommend your doing. Find an equivalent of killing a giant space slug in your head and celebrate that. <laughs>